world, this is Colby Boz on KTWHLP 99.5 FM in Two Harbors, Minnesota and streaming online at ktwh.org. Welcome to Energetic Talk, brought to you by a partnership of Clean Energy Resource Teams and Two Harbors Community Radio. I'm excited to bring you conversations about clean energy and get your questions answered by our guests from near and far. Today's topic is hydronic heating with my guest, John Well, John, welcome to the show. You're welcome. I would love to have you start by just introducing yourself and telling us a little bit about how you got into hydronic heating. Sure. Um, My background is mechanical engineering. Um, I worked in the solar industry way back in the late 70s, early 80s, and that was really my first experience with hydronic system. And um, that market, as sure you're aware, the, the initial solar thermal market kind of died away in the 80s. And it was, interestingly, it was replaced by a new market, and that was radiant panel heat, uh, hydronic radiant panel. What, what started that market was the availability of PEX tubing for the first time in North America. And that, that goes back to about 83. And that market grew rapidly, so I got quite involved radiant panel systems. Uh, and these are all hydronic-based systems. At that point, we were using boilers primarily, uh, oil-fired boilers, gas-fired boilers, and doing all kinds of projects from residential right 100,000 facility radiant floor heating prime um, <clears throat> I also spent 27 years teaching in engineering technology at Mohawk Valley New College Utica New York and taught just a, quite a variety of courses down there uh, and developed a course on hydronic heating. And from the materials that were developed for that course, uh, I was approached about writing a textbook. On, and I did. It's called Modern Hydronic Heating. And these cool. days, uh, uh, I'm largely retired. From nice. That. So you mentioned that kind of PEX plumbing and was kind of a big game changer for that. For maybe a bunch of my listeners that maybe don't do their own plumbing. What is PEX tubing and why was it so momentous in this space? Um, PEX PEX is actually an acronym for cross-link polyethylene tubing and it's a it's a polymer tube but it can withstand fairly high temperatures and relatively high pressures actually quite a bit higher than what it has to undergo hydronics uh, especially in radiant and the reason it was a game changer is prior to that radiant panel heating was done with either copper tubing or wrought iron piping and Actually, radiant heating with hydronics goes back to the very early 900s with just metal pipe. Even at that point, copper tubing wasn't available. It was basically iron pipe that welded, threaded together. And the problem with that is as these systems operate, the pipe heats and cools, heats and cools, you know, thousands of cycles a year. And eventually that fatigued the metal. Or there were reactions that copper tubing, uh, some compounds that are concrete. And the tubing would corrode and it would eventually fail. So radiant panel heating at that point kind of took on a bad connotation that people love the comfort when it worked, but the fact that you have a pipe buried in concrete 10 years or 20 years, it develops a leak. And of course, that's a very difficult to repair. And okay. you could repair one leak and a week later here. So the the attitude towards radiant panel heating with hydronics at that point in time, think World War II uh, time frame, uh, was that, yeah, it worked. Uh, it, it was nice when it worked, but it was expensive when it failed. And PEX tubing really came along and changed that, became a very reliable product. Uh, literally 100 billion feet tubing used all over the world for both um, for both plumbing and for hydronic applications. Yeah, definitely. 
Well, it's very interesting. So it seems like you yeah, do a lot of training now about this hydronic or radiant water heating. And I hear you are going to be doing a workshop at the Energy Design Conference here in Duluth. So, right. yeah, what should folks know about the conference and your workshop to see if they want to attend? Sure. Well, we did. Uh, I've been up there a couple times in person uh, several years ago uh, doing training on uh, hydronic-related topics. And uh, last year, of course, it was a virtual conference. Uh, we did a session on air-to-water heat pump, which is a, a definite growing segment in the heat pump market. Uh, so this year, um, we're, we're going to still do quite a bit with air-to-water heat pumps, but we're doing it within the context of how hydronic systems in general fit into net zero structural, residential, net zero construction. And net so zero, for those of the listeners that maybe aren't familiar with the term, is a goal for a house producing as much energy, usually via solar, as it consumes. Correct. And Hydronics technology today, modern hydronics technology, there, it has a lot to offer in terms of its use within net zero structure. And first and foremost, it's very good comfort. And I, I use the term superior comfort. Um, we could go into a detailed discussion of it, but uh, hydronic radiant systems in particular, radiant panels, whether they're floor heating or ceiling heating, even wall heating, really? that, that creates an environment uh, both from surface temperatures and air temperatures that is much more aligned with what human beings need for comfort. Um, there's, there's quite a science to it, but superior comfort is the first, uh, and, and really, I think one of the biggest three people would and should look at hydronic systems. Um, now, yeah, I know. Anytime I've been in a house with like radiant floor heating, it's so comfortable and just having that kind of the warm feet particularly in like the bathrooms and stuff when you're coming out of the shower. Yeah, yeah. So we can provide that comfort, and basically we're, we're in a transitional period where we're moving away from the traditional heat sources that would warm the water, natural gas, fuel oil, probe, so forth, into more renewable sources. And heat pumps are going to be a major uh, player in that regard. Um, use the term, heat pumps will eventually become the new boiler. They'll become the new normal. And, mm -hmm. and this, this trend is already uh, strong in the European countries. Uh, and hydronics is used, especially countries like um, Italy, Germany, France. Hydronics is a very large uh, portion of their market over there compared to forced air, which is, uh, forced air still dominates the residential market in North America. Right. So in a nutshell, what we're doing is we're bringing the, uh, the ability to do Beneficial electrification, decarbonization, uh, basically the, the energy and societal benefits of switching from fossil fuels to electricity, but we're not sacrificing comfort in the process. So, yeah, and so I'm interested in maybe you elaborate a little bit on how the experience of temperature works, because I find it very fascinating how like surface temperature of walls, the ceiling, the floor can be as important or even more important than the actual air temperature to perceived warmth and comfort. Yeah, well, it, it comes down to what is comfort, and comfort, in a nutshell, is conditions, the environment around the, the 
human body that allows heat to, to leave the body at the same rate that it's produced through metabolism. So if you're producing 400 BTUs per hour, but your environment uh, is allowing 600,000 BTUs per hour to leave your body through convection and radiation, evaporation, conduction, all the different methods of heat transfer, you're, you're obviously you're going to feel chilled and vice versa. If the conditions don't allow your body to release heat as fast as you're producing it, you're, you're going to feel too warm. So it comes down to creating an environment that is working in concert with how your body loses heat. And your, your body actually loses about 50% of its metabolic heat production through radiation, thermal radiation, hmm. which, you know, thermal radiation, you hear the word radiation, you think clear radiation. <laughs> but no, it's, it's, it's simply a form of heat transfer. It's been around forever. There's nothing new about it. There's nothing unhealthy about it. It's simply your body uh, transferring heat to, for example, a cold window surface. That's a very strong heat transfer uh, situation. So you could you could imagine yourself in a T-shirt and 70-degree air temperature in a room, and you're standing next to a large, let's say, a patio door on a, on a cold night, and that interior glass surface might be at 50, 55 degrees. Your, your skin and your clothing surfaces are radiating profusely to that cold surface. So you're, you're in a situation where thermal radiation is actually draining heat away from faster than your metabolism is producing. Yeah. And that's what panel heating and, and other heat emitters like what are called panel radiators, mm -hmm. they, they create warmer interior surfaces. They raise what's called the mean radiant temperature of the space. And the mean radiant temperature is just kind of an average of what the surface temperatures room around you are. Uh, as you bring the mean radiant temperature up, uh, you can actually decrease the air temperature and still maintain for That's why somebody could be outside on a 50 day with sunlight shining on them and they could be perfectly comfortable. But yeah, we've had a few of those here in the last couple of weeks because it's been super, super cold, like minus 20 sort of range. But when that sun's out, you're quite comfy. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, that's an example of just different heat exchange processes. Uh, the environment around you creating different uh, processes through radiation and conduction, convection. Wind chill is another example of it. Mm -hmm. The thing that is changed as we've brought heat pump on its market, we can now do. And this was kind of an Achilles heel in the hydronics market for, for a long time because obviously boilers don't do cooling right. and people would have to put in a separate cooling system. Now with heat pump, we can produce chill water in the summer and with the right type of distribution, we can do cooling from that chill water. Right, because it uh, seems like not as simple as you wouldn't necessarily the want water. the chilling yeah, in the so same spot as the heating. Like you don't necessarily want the floor cold in the correct, summer. Correct. We can do it with an air handler. We can do it with what are called console fan coils. And we're going to get into what are the options to provide chill water cooling. And the other thing we can do is domestic water. So mm -hmm. we're bringing the majority of the energy that is needed in residential structures in particular, space heating, cooling, and domestic water heating. We're bringing that all together and heat pump as our source of that. And then using what's available, uh, readily available as uh, hydronic hardware. Uh, putting together a system that can coordinate all those loads, you know, do things very efficiently. Yeah, so you've talked a bunch about kind of how heat pumps are where the future is for producing the energy for hydronic heating. And I'm interested, you did a little bit of kind of the mini split type air source heat pumps as 
a current technology that's often used. I've also seen like geothermal, so water to water heat pumps. Um, but you're talking about this kind of air to water. What are kind of the efficiency or performance advantages or disadvantages for that air to water versus the air to air, like the mini split? Sure. Well, we have done over the years, we've designed several hydronic systems around water to water geothermal heat pumps and and they work and I'm, you know, I'm not uh, against them. But what what is happening, the geothermal systems uh, definitely are more expensive, a lot more expensive heat pumps. And it's largely the loop field, the cost of the loop field, which even in a you know an average residential house with vertical boring easily have ten to twelve thousand dollars in drilling holes, putting tubing in, and bringing all that back. Uh, with an air-to-water heat pump, there is no thermal field. It's basically a condenser that sits on a stand outside, just like go to with air conditioning. So major cost reduction. Now the geothermal system, properly designed, will have a higher what is higher efficiency. It will have a higher what's called COP or cold fish form. But the, the interesting thing is, and, and many people don't understand this, you, you don't pay as a customer of an electric utility, you don't pay for a cold fish formant. So if I presented you with two heat pump options, one might have a coefficient of performance on a seasonal basis of, let's say, 3.5, that would be the geo system. And the air to water might have a seasonal COP of 2.5. So there's there's no question the geothermal system has a higher coefficient format. That is that that's a fact, but that doesn't necessarily mean that the return on investment system is better with a geothermal heat pump. Um, and and of course today the geothermal heat pump market is heavily subsidized both at the federal level. Right now the tax credits I believe are still either 26 or 22 percent system cost, and many state uh, and utilities within those states also have rebate programs. So uh, the geo thermal heat pump installation cost heavily subsidized and as such it is it is palatable in other words it is sellable to a consumer but <clears throat> take away the subsidies and the situation changed drastic terms of return on investment um, the other important thing to understand is the different savings of using a higher performing a more efficient geothermal heat pump versus air or water heat pump the savings are directly proportional to what the building heating load so as buildings get tighter in terms of insulation air sealing and so forth as the as the design heating loads of buildings decreases so does the saving associated with using higher performance heat pump versus a lower performance pump and just as an example um, I live in upstate New York uh, not too far from Syracuse and we have run examples of of uh, a modest-sized residential structure uh, with a geothermal system and then an air-to-water system with very typical low-temperature hydronic distribution. And the savings in round numbers is about $100 a year uh, using the geothermal versus the air-to-water. And that, that's due largely to the higher coefficient of performance. Uh, the difference in cost with subsidies on the geothermal system and none on the air-to-water system were about $6,300. So we're looking at at a higher cost of $6,300 amortized at about $100 saving. That would that's not take a long time to pay back. Far, far longer than the, the heat pump would last. Um, take away the subsidies on a geothermal heat pump, and literally the, the payback's about 100 years. And that's, of course, way, way beyond what uh, would last. Uh, a geothermal heat pump might last 20 to 25 years. An air-to-water heat pump design life is anywhere in the 15 to maybe 18 uh, year range. So okay. both 
both heat pumps can work with hydronic systems, and both will definitely be part of the market going forward. But the air-to-water is a, uh, I guess I'd describe it as a rising star in the market at this point. Many people don't know what an air-to-water heat pump is. Many people that have heard the word geothermal heat pump, they understand the basic concept. Uh, people have heard ductless, ductless, or mini-split. They understand that air-to-water heat pump is, is a, a largely, at this point, unknown, what I call flavor of heat pump. Right. Uh, but at least here in the United States. I know in Europe, it's a lot more common, as you mentioned earlier. Oh, yeah. well, globally, um, a couple of years ago, there was about 3.6 million air-to-water heat pumps. Uh, China is a huge market. Uh, the whole Asian area and the European continent are large markets. Uh, the European countries, uh, in round numbers, about 600,000 air-to-water heat pumps. And <clears throat> even traditional hydronic stronghold markets for boilers, uh, Germany in particular, uh, in the last three years, heat pumps have actually outsold boilers in market. So the, the markets are definitely changing, and with the just massive amount of programs that are out there, at the state level and uh, even at the federal level that are pushing for electrification uh, as the uh, the preferred method of, of heating buildings in the future, um, I, I foresee a very strong market potential for air-to-water heat pumps. If you are just tuning in, this is Energetic Talk with Colby Boz on KTWH 99.5 FM, radio with a lake view. Today we are, th- are talking with John about hydronic heating, so let's get back to the interview. It definitely seems like something worth looking into and likely a good solution for new building, but what about retrofit? seems like it would be a challenging use case for it, and you've already got likely ductwork for fresh air supply and the existing heating systems. So, yeah, what would your argument or considerations be in those retrofit situations? Yeah, yeah, there's there's definitely retrofit potential for them. The thing to understand, uh, heat pumps do not heat water hot as boilers can. A a boiler can heat water to 100 degrees easily. A heat pump can heat water to about 125 degrees. Now, does that mean that if you have an existing hydronic system that was designed around 180 degrees that you can't use the heat pump? And the answer is no. You can still use it, but you are going to need a supplemental heat source. It could be the existing boiler that remains in the project as a supplemental heat source, or it could be a a new electric boiler, for example. Uh, But we have done studies on this, and we're finding even in cold winter climates with high-temperature hydronic distribution systems, primarily tube baseboard, we can still do about three-quarters of the total space heating energy through an air-to-water heat pump. The other quarter would come from the source. Now, in retrofits where the water temperature can be reduced either by adding insulation uh, to the building and, and bringing design load of the building down uh, or expanding the hydronic heat emitters that are used, uh, you know, adding more heat emitters within the building, both those measures can bring the water temperature requirement down. Now, we we could potentially approach maybe 90% of the seasonal heating energy coming from the heat pump balance coming from the auxiliary. And in new construction, uh, you know, tight, energy-efficient construction where we can design a really low-temperature hydronic system where we only need water at maybe 100 degrees on line day, even in a cold climate. Uh, now we can do upwards of 95, 96 cents of that seasonal heating energy. And the reason I don't say 100%, if you're in a very cold climate like Duluth, as an example, uh, when it's 20 below zero, 
there really isn't any air source heat pump that is doing much at that point. It might be running, but its capacity and its efficiency are very low. And, of course, the building load is, is peaking out at that point. So for those few hours a year, or, you know, in Duluth, it might <laughs> few, be more than a few hours days a year, here in Duluth. <laughs> so you, you do need supplemental heat. Now, the supplemental heat can be literally anything. It could be space heaters. It could be a wood stove. It could be elements in a buffer tank that are electric heating elements. Uh, it could be an electric boiler. It could be that existing fossil fuel boiler. And, you know, keep in mind that <clears throat> I think one of the uh, misperceptions that's out there right now is that buildings, some people feel that buildings have to immediately go to 100% electricity, that if there is an existing fossil fuel system in that, it has to be ripped out from it's, it's absolutely got to go. That, I, I feel, is, is a little bit short-sighted. And, and the reason for that is that existing boiler, assuming it has some life left in it, it might have another five years, ten years of service life left, uh, that not only provides backup if the heat pump was down for any kind of service work, it also can supplement the heat pump on those cold days. And a fossil fuel boiler can run on a very small little portable electric generator, like like a little you know, a portable two thousand watt generator. You cannot run a, a four or five ton rated heat pump on a little generator like that. You know, large right. stationary it'd be a twenty kW generator. So <clears throat> if there was a that can be power super route, important for when because we do get powder our <laughs> excuse me we do get power outages sometimes up here right. and it's hard when you lose your heating and it's the middle of winter and there's a power outage because right. there's a blizzard. That's right. So. Uh, the, the term resiliency, which is you know a popular term today, I feel that applies to the ability to uh, keep a fossil fuel boiler on site as long as it's serviced and, and operational. Keep in mind that it's only providing maybe five to ten percent of that seasonal energy. The rest of it is coming through uh, electricity operating the heat pump. So um, I'm not a fan of immediately tearing out anything that operates on fossil fuel and and putting an electric boiler in as the backup. Now eventually that might make if the fossil fuel boiler eventually reaches the end of its design life it could be replaced by an electric boiler but there is another uh, <clears throat> issue that has to be addressed imagine a scenario where you're in Duluth Minnesota and you've got 5,000 houses that have been converted from fossil fuel to all electricity they have heat pumps as the primary heat source and they have electric elements as backup imagine a day when it's 20 below zero the heat pump are not doing too well at that point. Uh, so most of those systems all have their electric resistance heat switched on. That's going to put a very high heat demand on the utility. And does the does the utility have the ability to do that? Um, right. That's definitely something I know through my work with utilities, they're starting to try and address and look ahead towards... Right now, yeah. the peak loads are usually during the day, and so nighttime is actually a good time to add load for, like, heating. But well, as that shifts into the future, the anticipation yeah. is that peak loads will be at night when it's coldest. You're also going to see um, shifts. Uh, I can speak in, in upstate New York, the utilities typically historically have had summer peak when you have a really hot, humid day, everybody has their air conditioning. That is projected to shift to a winter peak starting in about 10 years. And going forward from that point, they expect the winter peak to continue to climb relative to the summer peak. So it's going to be a challenge 
to create the distribution systems as well as the backup generation capacity to meet a scenario where the vast majority of your utility district is requiring electric heat on a very cold, you know, think about four, five, six o'clock in the morning. Uh, you know, that's typically where those peak loads are occurring, um, or even later, seven or eight o'clock in the morning. It's still very cold outside, but <laughs> lights are coming on and yep. so forth. Uh, so eventually, I, I feel that the the grid will be at, in a position where it can do that through multiple uh, methods, not all of which are building new power lines. It could be battery storage. It could be off-peak rate structures that encourage thermal storage. Um, you know, It could be a combination of approaches that bring the ability to meet those peak demands. But I, I don't see that happening in the next two, three, four, five. I think it's going to be a much more gradual and phased-in process. And during that phase-in, I think the what makes sense to me as an engineer is to look at, do we have an existing fossil fuel system in there? Is it operational? Is it service? Can we integrate the air-to-water heat pump with it? And the answer is absolutely yes, both in, in retrofit and, and well as new construction. It, it hmm. would be possible to build a, a, a small high-efficiency boiler into a system as a backup or supplemental device to an air-to-water heat pump. So again, during the conference, we, we have a fairly long session. We, we have it broken up into three areas or three time frames. Work at the, the nuts and bolts in detail. Uh, we look at not just the conceptual uh, approach that, that we've been discussing, but how do you actually do this with hardware? Thank you, John, so much for being on the show. You're welcome, Colby. Thanks for the opportunity. That was John talking with us about hydronic heating. Listen to this and all past shows online anytime at mncerts.org slash energetic talk. If you have any questions you would like answered on the show, please email them to colby at cleanenergyresourceteams.org. Thank you for joining us in Energetic Talk. Special thanks goes to Carlisle Evans Peck for the theme song and our featured artist, Pig's Eye Landing. I hope you enjoyed listening to KTWH 99.5 FM and will tune back in every second Thursday at 7 p.m. or the following Sunday at 1.30 on the air or online at ktwh.org. This is Colby Abaz signing off. <laughs>